Welcome to episode 31 of History of the Marine Corps, A New Nation Divided. Our last episode introduced America's next war, and the first official war the country fought as an independent nation. France and the United States had a great relationship until America signed a few treaties with Great Britain. France saw this as a betrayal to our alliance, and in return, authorized French privateers to seize American commerce vessels. They claimed this move was justified because the United States abandoned the principle of free ships, free goods, outlined in the Treaty of Amity and Commerce. In this episode, we draw the curtain back on American politics towards the end of the 18th century. President John Adams is dealing with France attacking and seizing American commerce ships, and the Federalist and Democratic Republican parties are using the conflicts to advance their own political party agenda. The controversy was a crucial phase for the United States and introduced the challenge of international diplomacy. We also briefly discussed the XYZ affair and the passing of the Alien and Sedition Acts of 1798. We'll end the episode with a short discussion about the decision to establish the Department of the Navy and the passing of the Marine Corps Act, which formally established and organized the United States Marine Corps. Yeah. Thanks for joining. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. Our last episode left off with tensions rising with France. The signing of Jay's Treaty angered the French and caused them to feel betrayed. Jay's Treaty created a lot of controversy in America, between the public and politicians. Before Adams was elected, he vowed that he would not seek war if it weren't justified. This vow won over the American people, and in 1796, John Adams was elected as the Federalist nominee for president. He presented his official position in his address to the nation, saying, My entrance into office is marked by a misunderstanding with France, which I shall endeavor to reconcile. Adams went on to say, But if infidelity, dishonor, or too much humiliation is demanded, France shall do as she pleases and take her course. America is not scared. Unfortunately for Adams, the conflict with France dominated his entire presidency. The controversy was a crucial phase in the United States and was her first conflict as an independent nation. This dispute also introduced the challenge of international diplomacy. Adams was torn on what to do about the French. He didn't want to tarnish the relationship with the former ally over a misunderstanding. Adams was more of a man of action. He hated small talk and the bureaucracy of democratic politics. He was impulsive and had an active temper, which didn't pair well with being easily offended. Benjamin Franklin understood Adams' shortcomings. He once admitted, quote, Adams was an honest man, often a wise one, but sometimes wholly out of his senses. The second president of the United States had all the qualities of a patriot, but his attributes were not ideal for a Democratic Party leader. He strongly opposed party loyalty above personal morals. He didn't trust the public and favored a stable central government, much like Hamilton and many other founders. However, unlike Hamilton and most Federalists, Adams didn't believe that only the rich should rule. 
Adams believed that leaving wealthy politicians unchecked would be a higher risk of life, liberty, and property than war. This is a vital philosophy to keep in mind today, considering about half of our senators and representatives are millionaires, and more than half of the collective net worth belongs to the top 12 members in Congress. He argued this belief in one of his best-known political works, A Defense of the Constitutions of Government of the United States of America. In this document, he explained that in every society there is discord between the rich and the poor. He believed that this opposition should not control political leaders, and offered guidance and insight into the conflict between the two classes. He also understood the value of political parties, but thought the President of the United States should be bipartisan. This philosophy allowed Adams to focus on national policy and the good for all, and ignore petty party arguments. For the most part, he followed this belief and only strayed when party loyalty became so violent that it started tearing apart the country. Adams lived in France for many years during the American Revolution and adored the French citizens. However, he had reservations about their government and their religion, Catholicism. But regardless of his doubts, war with France was something he wanted to avoid. Much like today, both parties had extremists, and in the Federalist Party, they believed that America should be committed to Great Britain. President Adams was in the Federalist Party, and although he didn't share this belief, some in his cabinet did. The Secretary of State, Timothy Pickering, Secretary of Treasury, Oliver Wolcott, and the Secretary of War, James McHenry, were all Hamiltonians. Adams made a conscious decision to leave Hamilton out of decisive votes in his administration. But the dedication these three men had to Hamilton's leadership would conflict with Adams' choice. Hamilton was now a private citizen, but through these three men, he was able to influence government policy. Adams understood the risk of keeping these men members of his cabinet, but decided to leave them in place when he was elected president. The biggest crisis on his plate was dealing with France seizing American ships. Adams saw an opportunity to create a special commission and potentially unite representatives from the conflicting parties. Members from the Federalist and Democratic-Republican parties would work together for a solution. He also assumed that including both parties would win France's respect, since the United States was showing this was a bipartisan issue, not a Federalist issue. Both parties sent representatives to the committee. The first two meetings went as you would expect. There were arguments and the Federalist and Democratic Republicans refused to sway from their beliefs. In the third meeting, Adams would give a speech that was straight and to the point. He discussed the short history of the nation, applauded the Constitution, publicly made known his belief and his trust in a Republican government, and declared the spirit of his party to be morally wrong. He strongly opposed getting involved in foreign affairs. He believed that interfering with international relations would allow foreign nations to, quote, govern us and not we the people who govern ourselves. He promised to maintain peace with all nations and remain neutral between the countries at war. He gave a persuasive speech. When Adams finished, there was applause and some people even cried. Adams anticipated his speech would bring criticism, but for the most part, it was welcome. However, the Federalists were filled with fear. Adams just denounced the spirit of his party, and they felt crossed. Many thought Adams was a patriot, 
and considered him a friend of France, of peace, and someone who respects republicanism. Despite the fear or admiration from both political parties, Adams believed that most people in the nation were not passionately attached to any party, and a collaborative approach is the best way forward. The thoughts of the American people meant very little to France. Charles Coatsworth Pickney was sent to Paris to replace James Monroe, who was serving as America's minister to the French Republic. When Pickney arrived, not only did the French refuse Monroe's replacement, but also drove him out of Paris. The French also issued a decree that violated the Franco-American Treaty of 1778 by canceling out the free ships, free goods principle we discussed during last episode. This new law announced that any American found serving under an enemy flag would be treated as a pirate. It also said that any American ship that didn't carry documentation, considered appropriate by French officials, listing the crew and passengers was considered a lawful prize. This law was concerning. American vessels didn't carry these types of documents, nor had the French required this in the past. Although the French didn't officially declare war on the United States, these acts launched maritime hostilities against America. This practice changed the environment. Federalists were now saying, I told you so, and Adams had to deal with the aggressive new laws coming from France. He had three options. One, he can request an embargo on American shipping to French and Caribbean ports. Two, continue on his path and try to find a solution that avoids conflict. Or three, ask for war in defense of the nation's interest. Everything was on the table, and Adams met with his advisors to seek the best solution. One of his main questions was, what does the United States need to do to prepare for war? Without a navy, it would be challenging to fight the French. Should we rely on privateers like the beginning of the American Revolution? Should America purchase new frigates? Or should we focus on negotiations? Again, this decision split leadership. So much so that they physically fought due to their disagreements. French behavior, coupled with the dispute between political parties in the United States, caused Americans to begrudge France quickly. This disapproval turned into fear, and in late March, Robert Liston, who served as the British Prime Minister in Philadelphia, received instructions to provide naval protection to American commerce. Despite the growing resentment from Americans and the escalating tensions from France, Adams still didn't want a war. He felt the United States had the most to lose and very little to gain. Adams was concerned the United States might be left alone to contend with the conquerors of Europe. McHenry met with Hamilton regarding Adams' request, and they discussed the defensive forces needed to stop an invasion. McHenry's reply to Adams echoed Hamilton's advice, and he used many of the exact sentences by Hamilton in his letter to Adams. The Secretary of State also collaborated with Hamilton and submitted a 25-page paper that included recommendations primarily suggested by Hamilton. Even though Hamilton was a private citizen, he was controlling political decisions. Everyone had the same motivation for their opinion, and they all involved promoting their political party. Through Hamilton's advice, the country was now attempting to negotiate with France while simultaneously preparing for war. But Adams was impressed with the information provided by his cabinet, and made his speech to the nation. However, 
the French government didn't consider itself at war with America, nor was it planning to declare war. They also dismissed the idea that the American government would ever declare war on France. Talk of war was more common amongst Americans than the French. The French Council General in Philadelphia explained to Adams and Jefferson that France did not want to fight with the United States. He declared that if America sent a representative to Paris, someone the French could trust, everyone would be right with the two countries. Adams announced that he would make a fresh attempt at negotiations, but added that we must build our defenses, especially a navy. Adams thought that a naval power next to the militia is the natural defense of the United States. On top of increasing the number of ships for the Navy, he recommended arming merchant vessels, forming a provisional army, and strengthening the militia. William Smith was a chairman of the Ways and Means Committee and a Federalist from South Carolina. He was another Hamiltonian, and on June 5, 1797, he introduced 10 resolutions that supported the President's program through Hamilton's agenda. These 10 resolutions caused a lot of debate in Congress for weeks. Congress eventually agreed to increase the size of the U.S. Navy, regulate import and export of weapons and ammunition, prohibit American citizens from privateering against other nations at peace, and armed 80,000 militiamen. They also instituted a raise in salt and stamp taxes and loaned $800,000 to support this plan. In October, Adams assembled the people and supplies to support a mission to France. The team was made up of Charles Pickney, Elbridge Gerry, and John Marshall. Here's a fun fact about Elbridge Gerry. He should have went down as the father of the Bill of Rights, but instead, he's remembered for the term gerrymandering, a practice which shifts power away from voters and towards the parties. They arrived in Paris and met with Charles Maurice de Talleyrand, the French foreign minister. Talleyrand explained that for the negotiations to move forward, the Americans needed to apologize for the remarks Adams made about France, pay him, personally, $250,000, and give a loan of $12 million to France. They wanted a bribe, which was common in European diplomacy at the time. The three Americans were familiar with this custom, however they refused to pay. The refusal to pay wasn't based only on principle. They didn't have the money, and there wasn't a guarantee that if they paid, France would still move forward with negotiations. A loan to France would also violate the treaty with England, and could potentially cause a war to break out between the United States and Great Britain. This issue is known as the XYZ Affair. Adams replaced the names of the negotiators with letters. The X was Jean Conrad Hottinger, who asked for a 50,000-pound payment to Talleyrand. The Y was Pierre Bellamy, who asked for, quote, a great deal of money, and suggested Americans make a series of purchases at an inflated price. And Z was Lucien Haltival, a wealthy sugar planter. He sought peace, but also reiterated Talleyrand's demand for the loan and the $250,000 bribe. The American public didn't agree with this style of politics. And when the news of the French's behavior hit the United States, citizens were outraged. The most significant sign of Americans' reaction came from the Quakers. Quakers have a pacifist belief and strongly oppose war. However, after the French's response, 
many Quakers felt that war was needed to protect America's honor. Adams was infuriated with how American diplomats were treated in Paris. His stance towards the solution with France started to change. For example, he gave a speech wearing a military uniform and stated, The finger of destiny writes on the wall the word war. He also said to a crowd about France, To arms then, my young friends. But even though his views were changing, he didn't send a declaration of war to Congress. By June, the southern states were terrified that France would invade. They called for a cooperation with Great Britain to help secure their land. The summer of 1798 started to bring increased tensions with France. Short from a formal declaration of war, Congress enacted multiple actions against France to deal with the escalated pressure. The XYZ affair caused a lot of hostility towards France. Bellamy, the letter Y in the XYZ affair, elevated this hostility by accusing Americans of not being in the Federalist or Democratic Republican parties, but being part of the, quote, British party. He claimed that America based their decision on what was beneficial for Great Britain. This accusation caused public criticism and doubt of the Democratic-Republican Party's opposition to the Federalist agenda, and most likely led to the Alien and Sedition Acts of 1798. The United States passed four laws to protect the nation from spies and domestic traitors. The Naturalization Act was passed on June 13, 1798, and extended the amount of time immigrants had to live in the United States to become citizens. Initially set to five years, this law increased the duration to 14 years. The Aliens Enemies Act was passed nine days later and stated that once war was declared, all male citizens of the enemy nation could be arrested, detained, and deported. This law would impact 25,000 French citizens living in America. The Aliens Friends Act was passed on July 6th and authorized the president to deport any non-citizens suspected of conspiring against the United States during peace or war. The Sedition Act was the last of the four laws passed and directed at anyone who spoke out against the Federalist. This law was controversial because it was based on English law and directly violated the First Amendment of our newly approved Constitution. These four acts seemed to benefit the Federalist Party the most, and they began to use them to their advantage. Fourteen cases were brought under the Sedition Acts. The most famous is a Vermont congressman who wrote a letter criticizing the laws and accusing Adams of corruption of religion to further his war goals. A grand jury indicted him for stirring up hatred against Adams and sentenced him to four months in jail and a $1,000 fine plus court cost. Despite his sentence, the congressman ran for election in prison and won. That shows you where the American people stood on this. The opposing party tried to argue that the Alien and Sedition Acts were unconstitutional, but they faced a catch-22. It was impossible to debate against the four laws without violating them in the process. Jefferson and Madison secretly put together the Kentucky and Virginia resolutions, which outlined why the new regulations were wrong. Even though Jefferson was vice president at the time, he wasn't immune from prosecution. Everything Jefferson and Madison wrote had to be secret. Unfortunately, because of the secrecy, not much is known about how they put the resolutions together. 
When they finally presented their proposals, members of Congress did not welcome them. Ten states even publicly disapproved of them. The controversial acts would eventually end during Jefferson's presidency, and he would pardon everyone serving sentences under these acts in the United States. Jay's Treaty, the XYZ Affair, hundreds of American ships seized by the French, and multiple commercial problems between France and the United States ultimately pushed the two countries to prepare for war. America was in the worst position and needed a military to help defend her borders. The last frigate owned by the United States was the Alliance, but due to severe damage and costly repairs, she was decommissioned and auctioned in 1785. Members of Congress always recognized the need for a navy. Shortly after the American Revolution, United States merchants made a lot of resistance at sea from pirates. American merchantmen had their cargo stolen, and some of them were taken as prisoner. On January 2, 1794, the House of Representatives resolved that, quote, a naval force adequate to the protection of the commerce of the United States against the Algerian Corsairs ought to be provided. The Algerian Corsairs were also known as the Barbary Pirates, something we'll be getting into in future episodes. But nothing came of this resolution. The opposition argued that a navy would pose a greater danger to liberty than foreign armies. They also argued that maintaining, building, and operating the ships would be significantly expensive. But as time went on, the cost wasn't the biggest problem. The problem America had was lack of experience. Most naval officers who fought during the American Revolution were either dead or too old to serve. The few who remained were in the merchant marines, but there wasn't much Adams or the United States could do about that. So the president and the secretary of war at the time, Henry Knox, ignored the cries of high cost and started a navy. Instead of purchasing old merchant vessels and arming them for war, Knox suggested that the new frigates should be built from the ground up and designed to be superior to any ship in the European navies. He also suggested government employees, not private contractors, should be used to lower the cost of construction. Defense against France was initially supported by merchantmen and shipowners who were impacted financially by the attacks. As mentioned during our last episode, French privateers seized 316 ships, which was more than 6% of American merchant ships and equated to between 12 to $15 million in losses. This threat caused insurance rates to rise to about seven times their old level. The merchant industry in America originally wanted a navy to help protect their income. It was about money. But as tensions started to escalate, their motivation turned from protecting their assets into stopping France completely by war. They wanted a navy. In March 1798, Secretary of War James McHenry proposed a solution to Congress regarding a Navy fleet. McHenry and his staff spent a lot of time focusing on naval administration. This issue was taking time away from other military matters. Congress recognized this problem, and they passed a bill establishing the Department of the Navy on April 30, 1798. The Department of the Navy's primary mission was to protect the U.S. from enemies of the country, but at the time, the Navy had no operational ships to fight the French. On July 11, 1798, Congress formally established the United States Marine Corps. 
This approval created a foundation that had been in practice since the American Revolution. When recruiting sailors and Marines, naval captains in the American Revolution would assign their toughest men to serve as Marines. These men were armed with muskets, they would climb riggings to hazardous perches, and attempt to pick off the enemy. When ships would ram into each other, these same men would jump onto the enemy vessels while, quote, yelling madly using their cutlasses and pistols. This resolution organized Marines into detachments, trained them for specific roles on board naval vessels, and assigned the best men to serve on board these ships. This was the original purpose of Continental Marines during the American Revolution. But as we discussed in episode 29, A New Independent Nation, that vision never came to fruition. The Army also received support, and Congress authorized 12 additional regiments, each containing 700 men. This addition raised the number of regiments in the Army from 4 to 16. Congress also started to support the idea of protecting America's commerce and authorized public ships to capture armed French vessels that sailed off the coast of the United States. This action started the undeclared quasi-war with France. But the United States still had a glaring problem. They only had three ships. Just like the American Revolution, privateers would come in and supply some of the vessels that were needed. There's debate on whether the Navy borrowed the ships or if they became government property once outfitted for war. Personally, I lean towards the latter, since there isn't evidence the United States returned ships to their owners. But regardless of who owned the ships, America had the start of a fleet to support the war, and the country had her Marines back. There was doubt that America had the strength to defeat the French Navy, but the United States was used to being the underdog. During our next episode, we'll get into America's response to the French attacks. Thanks for listening. The Marines are back. And next week, we'll take a look at how the U.S. and France handles this undeclared war and start getting into a couple of battles. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each show, and take a look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share, and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and let us know why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening, and Semper Fi.